your written word would become a living word in our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is a joy to be back at Christ Church and to be with you all again. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in the Anglican Diocese of the Great Lakes. Uh, we've just had uh, recently a wonderful, wonderful synod where we had our Archbishop Foley Beach as our teacher. And one of the things that excites me about the synod is that we're having workshops, presentations, all done by our own people. That in the diocese we aren't bringing in visiting firemen. But God is doing so much wonderful, so many wonderful things among us that we've got a lot to share about what God is doing here in the Great Lakes. And so we have much to be thankful for. I also bring you greetings from the Diocese of Recife in Brazil. And I was asked to be part of the installation of uh, Miguel Ochoa as the first archbishop, uh, establishing a brand new province in the Anglican Communion. Uh, we were the first province established by GAFCON, the Anglican Church in North America, and the uh, province of Brazil is the second. And so Miguel Ochoa, who is the new archbishop, has long associations with our diocese. And he especially, especially wanted us to send me to represent you because we have been one of the chief supports for God's work in Brazil. Now, you might not have known that. And that diocese is just growing like crazy. And the thing that's amazing is the incredible number of young people, teens, 20s, 30s. And uh, I was really stunned because they have reached out to different groups of people. And one of the groups they've reached out to are fashion models. And so there were all these lovely young ladies, all of whom have given their hearts to Jesus, were out sharing the gospel, and then they had photos of them on the magazines. <laughs> and so I thought, all right, God moves in mysterious ways. And so it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. On Thursday, my wife and I head off to GAFCON in Jerusalem. And we particularly invite your prayers because that meeting in Jerusalem happens every five years. And bishops from throughout, and archbishops, clergy, lay, lay delegates from throughout the Orthodox provinces in the Anglican Communion will all be gathering in Jerusalem for prayer, for times of teaching, discernment, and joining together to further the work of the gospel in the Anglican Communion. And one of the statistics that's interesting is that GAFCON represents 50 million of the 70 million Anglicans throughout the world. And so we are mainstream, right? We are mainstream. And it gets even more interesting when you remember that the Church of England claims 22 million people as Anglicans, but their statistics show only a million and a half are active. And so one of the things that you need to be praying for and be thankful for is God is doing a powerful work within the Anglican communion. And it's very key that we join together to stand together uh, for the truth of Scripture. And uh, I'm looking forward to coming back with some great stories to share uh, to encourage us all uh, in our work in ministry here in Great Lakes. Well, there's a truth when we think about ministry that Jesus is focusing on in the gospel today uh, in Mark 3. And being a Christian, Jesus makes really clear, does not mean having an easy life. 
In fact, living a life of faith can make your life more complicated rather than less. And one of the people I most admire in my life is my wife, Patty. And among many callings in her life, she knew that God wanted her to marry a pastor. Now, how many women do you know (laughs) that in her prayer life, God spoke to her and said, Patty, I want you to marry a pastor now. A lot of women would say, no, thank you. That's more than I want to handle. But Patty knew that that's what God's will was. And uh, she prayed that the man she would marry would ask her over the first date at dinner. And so, what can I say? Uh, We're married, and our first date was dinner. And I found myself saying to Patty, uh, I've been praying the Lord would send me a wife. And lo and behold, we have celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary this year. And God is good. And the other calling that she knew that God had for her is that he wanted her to be a mother. And her faithfulness in both of these areas complicated her life immeasurably. But she's amazing. Now, when we had identical twins born, twin boys, and when they were born, we had four children, uh, excuse me, yeah, three children, four and under. So four of our kids, three of them were four and under. Three were in diapers in the same time. And so life was very, very complicated. And it often seemed like we were herding cats rather than raising children. And I remember one night, Patty rolled over in bed and looked at me and with all sincerity said, I know I'm a pastor's wife. I'm supposed to be spiritual, but I'm just thinking survival. (laughs) And so some of you in your own child rearing may have experienced moments like that. But when you live the life of faith and of caring and you're asking the Lord to move in your heart and teach you how to give yourself to others because you know it's God's will, what happens is you open yourself up to pressures and to complications that non-Christians really don't experience and understand. And it's good to remember that Jesus understands these pressures. And what we hear in Mark 3 today is a description of some of the pressures that Jesus faced. Now, did you pick up on what was being said in the gospel? Earlier in the passage, Jesus had healed a man who had a withered hand on the Sabbath. And he prayed for him, and in the power of the Spirit, bang, the man's hand was healed. And the people all around said, whoa, what's going on? This is amazing. And suddenly, crowds and crowds of people began to follow Jesus, waiting to see what was going to happen next. People everywhere began to seek Jesus out. And in today's gospel, it says, then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered. You can just say, oh, another crowd. And it said, so that Jesus and his disciples were not even able to eat. The crowds were pressuring. The crowds were demanding. And then what happened is, when his family, Jesus' family, heard about what was going on, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. They didn't understand what was going on. And so there were the crowds. You know, there was his family. And because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem, and they said, if he's healing on the Sabbath, that can't be God's will, because that violates God's word as we understand it. He must be doing his ministry by Beelzebub, by the devil. He's possessed by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. And so Jesus confronted them and said, 
How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot, what? It cannot stand. And so all of this pressure was building, building, building on Jesus. And so the question I want us to deal with is, how did Jesus deal with that pressure? And if we as faithful followers of Jesus are going to be willing to enter into what God has for us, we have to recognize that that could lead to pressure of different kinds in our own lives. And so how can we deal with that kind of pressure as well? Well, the first thing that Jesus did in this passage, in verse 13, is that Jesus withdrew to be alone. It says Jesus went up into the hills. Now, he disengaged from what was happening around him so he could engage with his Father in heaven. He needed to look at what was going on all around him to take a step back and view it from a heavenly perspective. Lord, what are you up to? What's going on here? Help me understand. And he needed to look at what was going on because he wanted to have that sense of peace and purpose. Jesus taught us to do what? Seek first the kingdom of God. That's what he was doing. And he taught us, when you pray, pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray that, because that's what he did. Now, if we don't follow Christ's example to come apart, then often what happens is we fall apart. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach us. Now, I love what Henry Nouwen says. He says, without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Now, not all of us are people that are contemplative. Some of us are doers. But yet now and says, it doesn't matter what our personality is. If we don't have solitude, we can't live a spiritual life. Yet many people try. People become addicted to noise. They've got to have the TV going all the time. They have to have the radio or their iPads going, iPods going all the time. And we become driven people rather than called people, as Christ intends. And I remember when I was a parish priest, one of the things that I had as a matter of custom in my life is that I would always, when I went to a new parish, find my spot. And it was a spot where I could go and just pull apart from parish ministry and be quiet. When I was in Cal uh, California, I had a spot by the King's River, beautiful tree. I'd take my little folding chair, my little cooler, my Bible, and I would go and hang out in that spot for three days. And the first time I did it, my wardens were not pleased. You know, why are you going, you know, to King's Canyon? You know, you're supposed to be working in the parish. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go and spend some time with the Lord, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to listen for God's guidance about what we need to do at St. Luke. Well, what could they say? You know. <laughs> and so they let me go. And what they discovered was that after I did this a couple of times, that I was so much more productive and effective when I came back. That they would come up to me and, you know, every now and then would say, you know, Ron, things are getting a little dicey around here. Uh, when are you going away to spend time <laughs> with the Lord? And so they, they picked up that something happened in that time of solitude. Something happened when I pulled apart to get God's kingdom perspective on what was happening in our parish. And so I want to encourage you 
to allow time for Gene and for Bob uh, to pull apart, to have times to pray over what God's doing here at Christ Church and see, see what happens, see if God doesn't honor and bless their time. Now, every great leader of the Bible was familiar with solitude. When you search the scriptures, you will discover that Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Eli Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul, John, all of them knew the power of solitude because they experienced the power of solitude. And in order to experience the power of God in life, we must experience the presence of God. And in order to experience the presence of God, we need to make a habit of spending time with God in solitude, alone, one-on-one, -on -one, just you and me, Lord. Some of you may say, well, this is impossible. You know, my life is too busy, my job's demanding, I have kids, I have a spouse, I live in a noisy neighborhood. You know, this taking time to be apart is a luxury I can't afford. And the reality is we all have pressures. It doesn't matter what stage of life we're in. We all have pressures of different kinds. And the more hectic our lives are, the more essential it is that we have time to do this. King David wrote, I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And that's Psalm 131, verse 2. And so David is saying, you know, I take time to be with the Lord. And like a weaned child, a mother who takes the newborn, you know, and puts the newborn, I love it, you know, put the little heads in your, the crook of your neck and you, you feel them, you know. There's a peace that the little one feels. And he says, that's what I find when I spend time with the Lord. You know, my wife and I have a brand new granddaughter named Josie, who's eight weeks old, and just the cutest thing. And I love the pictures that we get from our son and daughter-in-law where they're holding little Josie, and she's just at peace. You know, she's just sleeping in the arms of her mom and in the arms of her dad. And a child at rest with her mother is a picture of peace, a pe picture of contentment, a picture of security. And this describes our relationship with God when we take time to be still and to be with him. And so the first thing Jesus did when facing pressure is he stepped away to get, take time to have a heavenly perspective about what in heck is going on around me. His second step was that he prayed. And in a parallel passage, Luke 6, 12, it says, one of those days Jesus went out into the hills to pray and spent time praying to God. And if Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we? Now it's interesting in the New Testament, when Jesus discipled the 12, there's only one thing that the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, we want to learn how to do that. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to do miracles, or Lord, teach us how to pray the way, you know, excuse me, teach us how to preach the way you preach. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And the reason why they wanted to learn how to pray is that Jesus kept pulling apart, seeking times of solitude with the Father. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, I only do what the Father's given me to do. How did he know? He spent time alone with the Lord. I only say what the Father's given me to say. How did he know what to say? The Lord gave him the words that he needed. And so the disciples saw that there was a connection between the power and the effectiveness of what Jesus did and his time alone in prayer. And they wanted to get connected. They wanted to be able to do what Jesus did. And so if they were going to do what Jesus did, 
they recognized they had to spend time alone in prayer with the Lord. Well, Lord, how did you pray? What did you do? What is praying to the Father? How do you hear the voice of God? You know, Lord, if God gave you the things to say, what does the voice of God sound like? How do you know it's God and not your own imagination? They wanted to learn. Now, Dr. E. Stanley Jones, one of the great Bible teachers of the last century, describes the effect of prayer on us. And he says, prayer is not pulling God to do my will, not arguing with God, trying to convince him to do what we want. But he says, prayer is the aligning of my will to the will of God. The whole person is heightened by that prayer contact. In spending time with God, I have everything. He gives me what I need for character, conduct, and creativeness. So I'm rich with his riches, strong in his strength, pure in his purity, and able in his ability. And we forget that in Philippians 2, Paul tells us that when Jesus came among us to minister, that he gave up all his divine privileges, that he humbled himself to be born as a human with all our human limitations, just as one of us. And Jesus began his public ministry in prayer, identifying himself with our humanity and giving himself to be baptized in the River Jordan by John. And in that special moment when Jesus went down into the water, as Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, the voice of God was heard saying, This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. And today's un gospel underscores that Jesus pe preached, prayed, and ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. People were converted. People were healed. Demons were cast out. Miracles happened. And all of that was something that God's Spirit did. Jesus was a human being anointed by the Holy Spirit who took time apart, listened to the voice of the Lord, and then stepped out in obedience. Who are we? Human beings anointed by the Holy Spirit in baptism, called by God to listen for his voice and then do what? Step out in faith and be obedient. There was a woman uh, recently, uh, mother of a dear friend of ours. Uh, she just passed away a week ago at 101 years old. And Franny was someone, for whatever reason, wasn't just opposed to Christianity, but was violently opposed to anything to do with Christianity. And for years and years, 30, 40, 50 years, her daughter uh, loved the Lord, and every now and then would say, Lord, let me share with Franny. And her reactions were so violent and extreme that Barb was very discouraged about her mother and her, where her faith was or wasn't. And my wife would go over to the nursing home where Franny was to encourage Barb, Barb to be there. And Franny liked my wife. You know, my wife's sweet. I like her too. <laughs> and Patty just felt led by the Lord to, you know, when she went over by herself to see Franny, to share the, the, the uh, 23rd Psalm, The Lord is My Shepherd. And for some reason, Franny liked that psalm. And so Patty would always take time to do the 23rd Psalm and to say a little prayer. <coughs> and one day Franny said, and what does your husband do? <laughs> That's a conversation killer most of the time. And she was intrigued that I was a bishop. And she says, you know, I'd like to meet him. I've never met a bishop. 
And so Barb said, would, would you go spend time with my mom? And I said, sure. And so she wanted to see the bishop, so I made sure I had my collar on and looked bishopy and <laughs> walked in. And uh, I had with me, because I felt this is what God told me to do, a little bag, and in the bag I had some stuff. And as I walked in, Barb was in the corner, there was Franny, Patty was over in another corner. And I sat down and I said, hi Franny, I'm Ron. And she says, how are you? I said, fine. And I just had this sense of knowing in my knower, the Holy Spirit. And I looked at Franny and I said, Franny, you really want to receive Christ, don't you? And she said, yes. And I reached in my bag and I pulled out a bowl and some water. And I said, do you want to be baptized? She said, yes. And after we baptized her, I said, would you like to receive communion? Took out the bread and the wine. And we had a communion service. And Barb was just in the corner with tears. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, this was a Holy Spirit appointment. And all I was doing was trying to look at this situation from the Lord's perspective and saying, Lord, what do you want to have happen? And I didn't know what was going to happen or not, but what I knew is I had a sense of direction from the Lord and was willing to do what? Just step out in faith and be there for Franny. And uh, Franny picked out some hymns for her funeral, and it's all about the presence of Jesus, and it's all about walking with the Lord in heaven. And so, praise God. God did a wonderful work. Today's gospel talks about Jesus ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things that's true is when ministry in the Holy Spirit begins to happen, not everyone is happy. Sometimes people misunderstand what's going on, like Jesus' family did. Sometimes people are upset because it doesn't fit into their religious box, like the teachers of the law. And the teachers of the law were so threatened by Jesus' power and popularity that they accused Jesus of being possessed and casting out demons through Satan's power. And again, Jesus said to them, that's ridiculous. How can Satan cast out Satan? And Jesus came to bind Satan and to despoil Satan's house. But then he turned to the religious leaders and he gave them a warning. And he reminded them that God forgives all sorts of sins. But God does not forgive the eternal sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? Well, when the religious leaders were saying that the words and works of Jesus were the words and works of Satan, that was blasphemy. And instead of confessing Jesus as the Son of God, as the Father affirmed Jesus at Jesus' baptism, the leaders accused Jesus of being a son of Satan. And this was blasphemy. So the unforgivable sin is not some inadvertent remark about the Spirit or one's unbelief at some point in their life or a willful sin that we've done in the past. Rather, the unforgivable sin is a persistent rejection of Jesus as the Son of God. It is a persistent rejection of Jesus as Savior and Lord because there can be no salvation if Jesus is rejected. That's why Paul says if anyone comes to faith, it's through the power of the Spirit. The Spirit's been active. Somehow, the Spirit's been doing something in their heart where they open their heart to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
overwhelmingly, theologians both past and present agree, that a person who worries if they've committed the unforgivable sin don't need to worry about it. Because if they're worrying about it, it shows they haven't. Right? It's not a persistent rejection. They're trying to get it right somehow with God. The heart that blasphemes the Holy Spirit is the heart that does not worry about whether they have offended against God, whether they have rejected Jesus or not. And so the gospel today confronts us with a decision. And the decision is, who do you say Jesus is? And if you receive the testimony of St. Mark, the testimony is Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He was one that's been anointed with the Spirit of God to bring the good news of salvation and the power and the presence of the kingdom to those on earth so that we on earth can experience the power and glory of the kingdom of heaven right here. And that as we come in faith, God will anoint us with the same Spirit that Jesus was anointed with so that we too can do the ministry that Jesus did, so that we too can bring good news to others. And so the invitation today is, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? That's different than coming and attending church. But have you in the quietness of your own heart, like Franny, simply bowed your heart and said, Lord, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be in charge of my life. It doesn't matter how young or how old we are when that happens. And as we respond to that, Jesus says, I will be there. I will be there. And your sins will be atoned for, be taken care of, and you will receive a new life in me that will begin here on earth but will extend into eternity. We must move, if you know Jesus in your heart, then the message for today is that, yeah, there's a lot of pressure about being in the Christian life, being willing to enter into the broken places of the world, being willing to reach out to people whose lives are not all together. How many of our lives are totally together, right? We're helping each other. But when we move to a life of maturity and faith, what we're doing is moving to a place where we're saying, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. We're moving to a place where we're willing to take time in isolation, in solitude with the Lord, to listen for his voice and then to be obedient and to reach out in his love to those that we know need his healing touch. Let's be mature. Let's not let the pressures keep us away from the blessing of being able to minister Christ's love and healing to others. Jesus is amazing. And the thing that I found over the years is that he is so faithful to give us what we need to do what he wants, but we need to take the time to receive it from him, to be with him, to listen for his voice. Amen?